grace. I can't promise we'll have the time. Anyway, let's just have a, a very brief, a very brief uh, prayer, adding to what we've been saying. This is my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer. Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting for thy gracious word, longing for thy voice that cheereth. Master, let it now be heard. I am listening, Lord, to thee. What hast thou to say to me? Amen. Well, as Gus rightly informed you, we're going to be thinking about Jesus in a particular way this morning. And I can only say this to begin with, and that is that we're only going to get an impression of what I want to say to you because there's so much in it, you can't even do it in one sitting. But we're going to think together about the beauties of Jesus Christ. There will be a lot missing because there's a lot to it, but I just want to give you that flavor, uh, get our thinking processes working in such a way that God will bless us and that he will challenge us and help us. Uh, we're going to read a passage from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. And this is what the prophet says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, this is the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed or honored him not. Now, when I read uh, Isaiah's description of the Messiah, the Christ, in chapters 52, verses 14 to 15, and these verses in uh, in uh, chapter 53, I'm not at all convinced, as some seem to be, that Jesus, when he was 30 at the start of his ministry, would not have been plain or unattractive or a leper or a hunchback or very, short, very small and very short. Now, that's what some people believe about Jesus. None of us have met Jesus in the flesh. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what he looked like. And uh, I think that from Isaiah's description in chapter 53, verse 3 onwards, there's a description of a man who was beaten up, bruised, severely wounded. And it was after that, even before the crucifixion, that he had no beauty that we should then find him unattractive and undesirable and in terms of us being drawn to his person. Furthermore, if he was marred more than any other man, as it says in Isaiah, before his crucifixion, only God knows how much more marred he would have been after that crucifixion. And I'm going to quote from Helen here, God bless her, because one or two times when we've had our Tuesday morning uh, house group, that's funny, it's a house group that's in there, and she's often said how wonderful and beautiful she thinks it is that God should send Jesus and that that man should love us so much that he died for us. And you know, those things about his physical appearance, that's something in a way that we cannot prove. 
And the important thing about Jesus Christ is the beauty of his person rather than his physical appearance. So I want to leave with you what are some of the really important and meaningful beauties of Jesus Christ. And those things about him that we can hold on to tightly through what the Bible tells us about him and which we can use to guide us as to how we should live our lives as believers in him in a way that will make us want to know him as deeply and lovingly and powerfully as the Holy Spirit will reveal to us. If we have time, I'm going to set out three areas in which the beauty of my king and yours is displayed for us. The first is his divinity. That means who and what God is. The second one is his glory because it's a reflection or an exact image of the Father. And the third one is his humanity, his person, his character, and his nature, which I've based on the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the beauty of his divinity. When we consider divinity, we are thinking of who and what God is. This is important because everything that one member of the Godhead is, is exactly true of the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Heavenly Father is God. The Son is God, described by the Apostle John in his first chapter of the Gospel, the eternal Word of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is God, who is described by Moses in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as the Spirit of God who moved over the face of the raw waters at creation. And you might have noticed that the opening words of Genesis 1 say clearly that God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that God the Father created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't say that the Son created the heavens and the earth. And it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. And before you think I'm a heretic, let me say this. Moses makes it definitively the statement that in the beginning, God, that's what it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And for myself, that means one simple thing. All of God, the whole of the Godhead, created the heavens and the earth. And we're told next that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, which might mean that he was waiting, brooding expectantly for the next stage of the creation process, and if you will, the command to proceed upon the command which God was going to give. What was that command? God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. And then... It's not until Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that we're told that God said, let us make man in our image, you got that? That's plural, after our likeness, and that God created man, listen, in his image. See what's there? Let us make man in our image. And then it says, God, the whole of God, made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. He created him. He created them male and female. Notice, by the way, that it doesn't say that they created man in their image, but in his image, male and female. So to me, unmistakably, the whole of the Godhead was active in the creation of all things, but there is more 
especially considering, considering the Son of God, for his divinity is inextricably part of the very essence of God. The divinity of God is the Godness of God. It is all of who he is and what he is, and it is also the oneness of God. And that's also why when God gave, gave I'll start again, Moses, the Ten Commandments for the Israelites, his first command was preceded by the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The triunity of God, is that tri, one, two, three? The triunity of God is also the oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rightly to be described in the creeds of the Christian church, uh, and in the words of John Piper, which I'll quote in a minute, this is what we tell what we are told. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in person. These definitions expre ex express three crucial truths: the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Each person is fully God. There is only one God. And this is the first beauty of Jesus as expressed in the Christmas declaration, as we might think of it, to the Virgin Mary. The angel said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast, favor, hast found favor with God, and lo, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus, listen to this, he shall be great and he shall be called son of the highest or most high God and the Lord God shall give him the throne of David his father, that means his ancestor, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob to the ages or forever and of his reign there shall be no end. Because Gabriel's statement complements that of Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Matthew where it says, now all this happened, this is the birth of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, all this happened so that it might be fulfilled that was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall conceive in her womb and will bear a son and they will call him his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God is with us. And Joseph, being roused from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord said, and then, of course, there was the firstborn, and he called his name Jesus. The name Jesus, of course, means Savior. So here again, we see the truth that the divinity of God, the divinity of God, was fully present in the Son who came to us as Emmanuel. God with us, which takes us now on to the second aspect of the beauties of Jesus Christ, the beauty of his glory. Because the two-way direction of Jesus' whole earthly life was that of the relationship that he had with the Heavenly Father and that the Heavenly Father had with him. Just think of the occasions on which he stated, this is Jesus, stated to his disciples that very relationship. In John chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, Jesus tells them, 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus, and just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And it's under that that he lays down his life for his sheep. And then in John chapter 17, when praying to the Father, Jesus says the following, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. You see the two-way things? It's for the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. Just as you have given him authority <coughs> excuse me, over all flesh, so that he will give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, listen, the only true God. There is no other God of any religion. There is only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. And then he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me alongside yourself with the glory which I had when? With you before the foundation of the world. There's the divinity motif again. And in verse 17, he says to the Father that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And there's the oneness of the Godhead again. But the other side of this is that Jesus himself is the very image of his Father in every sense of the word. Not only does he share the oneness of the Godhead with the Father, but he also shares the glory of the Creator because he's part of the creation process right at the beginning of all things. And in a rather good translation of Hebrews chapter 1, we have this on the very same glory between the Father and Son. This is what it says. God, having in the past spoken to the fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, has at the end of these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. He is the Son, the, his Son rather, uh, talking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, that's of the Father's glory, the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purified us of our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they have. For to which of the angels did he say at any time, you are my son. Today I have become your father, and again I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he again brings the in the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Who? Jesus. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his servants a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, listen to this, to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. 
And there's a bit more about that, but I'm just going to miss that out for the time being. Then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 19, we have this. He who is the image of the invisible God, it's the Father that we can't see, and the Holy Spirit. At the moment, of course, because uh, we're in this bodily form, we can't see Jesus either. But he is the image, in his person, he is the image of everything that God is the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. Who's this? This is Jesus and for him. And he is before all things. John says, in the beginning was the word. He is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of, from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, that's Jesus, should all the fullness of God dwell bodily. And then in John chapter 1, we have more about Jesus' role in the creation of all things. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I prefer the other version, or did not overcome it. This is Jesus. So there we have the second beauty of Jesus Christ, he being the exact representation, image, likeness of the Heavenly Father. How many times have you heard relatives of a newborn baby boy saying he's the spitting image of his father? That's Jesus. He is absolutely a reflection of his father. And then finally, I want to spend some time on the third aspect of the beauties of Christ. And as I said, it's going to be rather meager, but I hope that it blesses you and that you will be enthralled by what you see in your mind and in your heart regarding this wonderful Savior. In a sense, this is where in his humanity, the beauty of Jesus Christ becomes most important and powerful for humankind, for we see this beauty in several ways. It's the beauty of his person and his character. I've got a whole list at home, and I couldn't get into this because there's too much. There's about two dozen aspects of the beauty of Jesus. Just imagine that. I can't even give you one or two of them. There's so many. Jesus would have contained in himself all of the ninefold, the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law, he says. But those belonging to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, those nine fruit of the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And you know, the first of the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit is listed as love. And if there's any one thing that stood out in the life and ministry of Jesus and in his character, his personality, his human nature, it was love. 
A number of Bible verses illustrate this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, of the rich young ruler, it says that Jesus, looking at him, felt a love for him or loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions, etc. But it's, that's the point. Jesus loved him. Even although that man could not come to Jesus, it says he loved him. Jesus loves all unbelievers. But it's not up to us to make believers in that sense. That's God's work. John chapter 11, verse 16, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and, his sister and, and her sister and Lazarus. John 11, verse 3 says, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold him you love, you love, is sick. And in chapter 11 again, verse 36, it says, So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. John 13, 23, There was reclining at Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. When Jesus, in John chapter 19, verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother, this is at the cross, and the disciple whom he loved. Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about John. And he says to John, Behold your mother. John chapter 20, verse 2. Uh, Mary Magdalene goes uh, to Simon Peter, and she says, uh, it says that he, that, he, that he was with the, G the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you know, there's quite a few things like that, and I'm going to miss three of them out there. Jesus said uh, that, um, I beg your pardon, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What's the rest of it? Who loved me and gave himself for me. John chapter 13 verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, a number of those references do actually relate to Jesus' special relationship with the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's often called by theologians and other Christians the Apostle of Love. That's not a mistake. And I find myself thinking that John might have been for Jesus what we might call a soulmate. I get the impression often that John and Jesus were alike from a spiritual point of view much like two people who think the same thing at the same moment. And perhaps John, to John, sorry, Jesus was an older brother whom he would trust with his life, as well as the fact that Jesus had clearly called John to himself for particular reasons. And two most important ones were that he was going to look after the Virgin Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, and she would no longer be his mother, not on earth, and certainly not in heaven, so that at the cross Jesus says something to them both. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he says unto his mother, Woman, 
behold your son. Not Jesus, but John. And he says to John, behold your mother. And then what does it tell us? And from that hour, the disciple, that disciple took her unto his own home. Look at the love of Jesus for those who loved him on earth. And look at the love of Jesus uh, throughout all of his life. And his love, of course, also involved his compassion. I'm lumping, I'm lumping this together with love. And we see this in verses regarding the Father. Because it says of the Father, Moses says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 14 it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Mark chapter 8, verse 2, I have compassion for these people these are the words of Jesus. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And needless to say, perhaps, it's a fact that three of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are sort of joined together. Kindness, goodness, and love. Jesus had all of those in abundance. On the other hand, all these verses give us some idea of how loving Jesus was, not just to his disciples, but to those who were not yet his disciples, and even to those people whose creation he was ultimately responsible for, which leads us to consider his role as the savior of the world. Because the second spe special calling of John was, of course, to write what the risen Christ would tell him about the end of the world. That's the book of Revelation, the second coming of Jesus, and the judgment of eternal condemnation of all those who would not believe in him. The most important point regarding the love of Jesus is, of course, what he did on that cross. And in his resurrection and ascension, he gave himself away. Here's the character of Jesus. He gave himself away for us so that we might become the righteousness or the rightness of God through our belief in him, what he did. And Paul sums it up in these words in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And then, of course, he says, uh, the, now, the life I now live, I live through the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what Jesus did. Ephesians 5.2 uh, Paul says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. John, 1 John, sorry, chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. That's not the denomination, that's the, brother, the brothers. We also know from Jesus' own words in John chapter 10 that this was his own awareness of his first coming. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then, more briefly now, because of the shortness of time, let me just point out some other aspects of the nature and the character and the person of Jesus Christ. The ninefold fruit of the Spirit, uh, after love, we have joy, 
we are encouraged to be looking up to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, uh, our faith, sorry, and it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. Joy. Jesus had joy. If you think about his life, it's quite incredible that he had joy. John 15 verse 11 says, Jesus says, I should say, these things I have spoken unto you, this is all about his going away, leaving them behind, dying, and all the things that was going to happen to him. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be, what's the last word? Full. That's it. He was a man of joy. Luke chapter 10 verse 21 in the King James says, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in his spirit, or the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, the people who think they're wise and prudent, and has revealed them to, unto babes, even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. And, you know, the use of the word rejoiced in the Greek in that particular context seems literally to be the word exulting. And wait till you hear this. Or jumping with joy. And that's wonderful. The, this episode is astounding for the man of sorrows who also told the disciples that their own joy would turn their own sorrow sorry would turn to joy after he would do after what he would do for them and when they gained heaven in the end another characteristic of Jesus was his peace and his peacefulness the prophecies concerning his first coming would, was to be that he would be the prince of peace he said to the disciples my peace i leave with you not like the peace of the world, the peace that the world will give, but a lasting peace. And he reminded them that although they were sorrowful because he was leaving them behind, he would return to them, not just at the resurrection, but also in his second coming. And after that, we don't really have, uh, we really haven't gone in very deeply into the beauties of Jesus. And we could spend more time. Let's take his holiness and you know, that's part of his divinity, the whole of the Godhood. A few verses might help just here. In Acts chapter 4, we have the testimony of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. The first church started in Jerusalem, just in case you forgot. Uh, and this is a testimony to the authenticity of Jesus' person and holiness. And Peter here is praying, and he says, The kings of the earth take a stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. And then he says this, For truly in this city against your holy servant, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your counsel foreordained to happen. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak the word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and that the signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. One of the aspects of holiness is the incorruptibility of the one who is holy. He cannot be enticed or persuaded or coerced into anything impure 
or ungodly. This is why Jesus could rightly and boldly declare, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And three remaining fruits of the Spirit are also connected to each other. These are long-suffering, meekness, and self-control. In the book of Numbers, we are told that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. That was absolutely true, at least until Jesus stepped on the planet, because he was even more meek, meek than Moses was. You know, sometimes Bible versions replace the word meekness with gentleness, and gentleness is part of it. But there's more to meekness than that. It contains patience. Henceforth, it's uh, long-suffering. Think about the long-suffering of God, what he's putting up with mankind. He's a long-suffering God. He's taken thousands of years to, until the earth comes to an end as it is now. He's been giving people time, as Sandy rightly reminded us. He's been giving the human race time to respond. But there's only so much time. And this is what he does. And Jesus is full of this patience and this meekness. And the original meaning of meekness is strength under control, which also means self-control. And we might like to think of people who seem to us to be rock steady without being brash or any such thing. And there's one, this is one of the most beautiful traits of Jesus' person. His gentleness, yes, but he's outstanding in that, that he is meek. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And if he's meek and lowly in heart, and he's got strength under control. He's got the power of the whole of God in his control. And he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. And if you come to me, you will find rest unto your souls. If you need rest of any kind, come to Jesus, the perfect one. And then we have to do a kind of application of all these things. As Jesus and his life are an example reflecting the glory of the person of his heavenly Father, in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, this shows us how our lives as born-again believers should reflect the very life of Jesus Christ. This is the aim of the message. It says that the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit, not the fruits, it's, this is all the fruit. It says, the fruit of the Spirit. How can you and I know that we are like Christ or Christ-like? What's the proof of the pudding for us? That I am truly being changed into the same image as my Lord and King Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. You see, God wants us to be like Jesus. Jesus wants us to be like our Heavenly Father, in whom there is no darkness at all. And surely the answer must be as to whether or not I am being changed into glory from one level of glory to another. Surely the answer must be that everything about Jesus was beautiful. Every aspect of his person, his character, his nature was God-bound towards his Father and essentially just the very contents of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, walk in the Spirit. This describes the beauty of Jesus. 
And it's not all that's on the list. And, and Paul says very quickly, he gives, you look at this yourself because I'm not going to go into it, but he gives a list of things that are not of the spirit, that are of the world. He talks about lust and, and uh, immorality and all sorts of things, uh, uncleanness, idolatry, and there's a whole list there. But then, of course, he comes to the fruits of the spirits. And we might not be living those debauched lives that Paul lists there, these evil things. But are our lives as born-again believers full of the traits that were the beauty of Jesus Christ? In other words, where is the evidence of the changes that we should be taking place in us? Simply because we love and adore the one who loved and adored us so much. Think about that. He loved and adored us so much that he came into the world that the work of the Holy Spirit in us through the risen Christ could make us beautiful like Jesus. Just think about that quickly. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. No wonder Paul says against such things there is no law. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So to sum up, throughout history of humanity, both for believers and unbelievers, the majority of people seem willing to acknowledge that there has been no one quite as outstanding in the history of the whole world as Jesus Christ. He has been described even by some atheists as the best of men. Even he's been described as the first socialist, but that's not a very good description. And in other words as well, have you ever known a man who seemed to be always surrounded by admirers, people who wanted to be in his company to hear what he had to say or to see what he could do, or who just oozed goodness and love and kindness and compassion and mercy, or who just, who just oozed peace and confidence and inner strength and yet was not self-obsessed or conceited about himself, but at the same time was meek, quiet strength under control, gentle, a man with the most powerful presence you could ever meet. For myself, I'm not ashamed to say I have met him, not in the flesh, but I have met him spiritually through his salvation and grace as he is in every way the most beautiful man, the most beautiful human who has ever lived. He is the A to Z He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. And the final challenge is, how do you know that you belong to him? Is your heart and soul and mind enraptured, caught up, obsessed, and full of this man? Full of the Holy Spirit, for he went back to heaven to send to us the Holy Spirit. And after all, the Holy Spirit is the one and the only one who can reveal Jesus to us. He's the only one who can reveal him to us. And you know, he will reveal to us the beauties he wants us to share with him. And that he wants to share with us. If you know Jesus Christ and you live for him, you should notice. I believe this. You should notice, not everybody else, that as you grow in your faith and trust in him, you are becoming like him, being changed from one level of glory 
into the Christ-likenessness of another glory. The test is how strong is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you and me? If there is no or little evidence showing in us that we have the fruit and the beauty, we need to seek his face and ask him to show us why the evidence is weak. Bernard of Clairvaux, a man who adored Jesus Christ, wrote these words, O Jesus, King most wonderful, thou conqueror renowned, thou sweetness most ineffable, that means you can't put it into words, in whom all joys are found, when once thou visitest the heart, the truth begins to shine, then earthly vanities, empty things depart, then kindles love divine, and I would add, and love for the divine. How are you doing with the king, the words of King David in chapter 27, verse, I beg your pardon, Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, and we shall, if we're believers, all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to enjoy, inquire, sorry, in his temple. You know, Thomas was a doubting man, supposedly. I admire Thomas, not because he doubted, but because he wanted what he was going to believe in to be verified. That's what he wanted. He wanted the truth. He wasn't there when Jesus turned up the first time. And then he goes back the next time Jesus turns up. And Jesus says, well, there you are. You want the evidence? There's the thorns in my head and, and the, the scars in my hands and my feet and the hole in my side. He says, there's the evidence. What did Thomas do? He got down on his knees and he said what we should all be able to say, my Lord and my God. Jesus lived and died, was resurrected and ascended precisely to make us as beautiful as him. Why would a believer in Christ like you and me not want to be as beautiful as him? We are each his temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is the Lord, says Paul. And he's in us so that we might receive and live by the fruit that he is holding out to us. Why would we not love and trust and believe in this beautiful Savior? First, look inward. And then I, I plead with you, look upward. Praise his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us your living word. You've given us your written word. And you've given us your, you've given us your Holy Spirit who dwells within us that he might transform us into the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me. May that be true. And may he be blessed and may we be blessed as we consider the wonderful, beautiful Jesus Christ that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.